Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a charming early symphony of the greatest of all symphonists. I guess you can argue with that, but Franz Josef Haydn, certainly the father of the symphony, a man who, if he didn't absolutely invent the form, certainly pioneered it and created 104-plus works in the genre. There are 104 numbered symphonies, but he probably wrote 107 or 111, some vast number, and in the process really invented the form. Uh, as I mentioned, this is an early work of Haydn's. It's from uh, the probably late 1760s, 1769, and it was performed by Haydn and his orchestra, the orchestra that belonged to the Esterhazy family, a noble family in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, on a visit from the great queen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Maria Theresa. And so it's it's um, been attached to her name pretty much ever since. Uh, that was a visit that was probably made in 1773, but it's thought now that the symphony was probably written a few years before. Now, in the uh, 1760s and 70s, Haydn was really experimenting with the form of the symphony, essentially inventing it and trying all sorts of kind of radical innovations, particularly in his symphonies in the minor key. Uh, however, uh, he wrote a great number of, of symphonies in C major, I think probably because the Esterhazys had many uh, illustrious uh, visitors, royal visitors, and uh, every time one showed up, Haydn had to supply a rather celebratory, almost military style piece uh, for their visit. So this is one of those fabulous, luminous, uh, brilliant C major symphonies. It was probably originally written uh, just to include oboes and horns, along with a bassoon and uh, the usual string or orchestra, and probably a harpsichord playing what's called continuo, sort of the bass line. So we've maintained the harpsichord and the, the oboes and the horns and the bassoon, but in a later version that came to light in Budapest uh, some years later, it seems that Haydn at some point added trumpets and timpani to make the piece, again, more sort of martial and more more thrilling. And uh, those instruments, the trumpets and the drums, play only in the outer movements, the first and last movements, and the horns play in the inner two movements. So we're doing this kind of later version of the Maria Teresa Symphony. It's a beautiful piece in four movements, a very brilliant trumpet-drum fanfare kind of introduction movement, a really delicate, beautiful kind of rococo, very simple and straight-ahead, songful second movement, a charming minuet, a third movement, and finally, a daring and dashing finale. Uh, since the piece is in C major, it actually turns out that even though C major is the key that most of us first learn when we learn an instrument, whether it be piano or another instrument, uh, C major is actually a devilishly hard key to play in on string instruments, especially at the unbelievable breakneck pace that Haydn demands in the finale in the last movement of this symphony. So here it is now, the symphony number 48 by Franz Joseph Haydn, the Maria Theresa Symphony. It's played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.
That was the Albany Symphony's performance of the Symphony Number no. 48, the Maria Teresa by Franz Joseph Haydn, the first work on our concert. Uh, it was followed by a, an incredibly beautiful piece, a piece that, frankly, I had not known until my dear colleague, David Janauer, the conductor of Albany Pro Musica, mentioned it to me. We had talked for a number of years about presenting the Bach Magnificat, that great, very concise choral masterpiece. And when David and I got together to sort of consider what else might be on the program, I said it would be wonderful if we could also feature the the Albany Pro Music Chorus in a somewhat different contrasting piece. And he mentioned this very early work of John Corleano. Now, John Corleano is a composer that the Albany Symphony has developed a very close relationship with in the last few years. In fact, we we just made a recording of his music about two years ago that will be released on Noxos Records uh, sometime within the next year of his percussion concerto with the great percussionist Evelyn Glennie and of a beautiful vocal piece, Vocalese, uh, for voice, electronics, and orchestra. We've also played a number of other pieces of of John Corleano, but this is by far the earliest work of John's we've played, and it is an incredibly uh, luminous, beautiful, beautiful piece. John wrote it when he was still uh, just an undergraduate at Columbia College. He'd grown up in New York City, uh, the son of the concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic, John Corleano Sr., John's father, uh, was the concertmaster of the orchestra for, for decades and a, a really celebrated figure in New York, and yet was very much not in favor of his son's pursuing a career in music, let alone in composition. In fact, I, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, when John Jr. finally mentioned uh, his wish to his father to be a composer, uh, his father sort of turned away in disgust and said something along the lines of, well, you'll never make any money and you'll never have any success. Of course, the good news is uh, John proved him quite wrong as now the winner of an Academy Award and numerous other prizes, a, a composer whose music is played all over the world and certainly one of the most celebrated of all living American composers. He, he proved his father wrong. Anyway, in the last year of his undergraduate studies at Columbia College, John encountered the poetry of Dylan Thomas, which frankly was fairly new in the world. In fact, the poem that uh, he set, our next piece, Fern Hill, was written in 1943, and here was John in 1959 discovering this incredible piece of poetry, as well as other works of Dylan Thomas. And through his long life, John would return. John's still very much alive, but he's now in his 70s. He returned over and over again to the poetry of Dylan Thomas and actually has created a, a gigantic evening lanes work, uh, a Dylan Tr Thomas trilogy, uh, which actually has within it this first piece, uh, the Fern Hill setting. So Fern Hill, a, a beautiful poem by Dylan Thomas, uh, an evocation of his simple youth on his aunt and uncle's dairy farm in, in Wales. And uh, at the same time, it's, it's a, a poem that starts, uh, again, very positive, very innocent. And yet as the poem unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that the poem is about, about time and about how time has its way with us and how it's not really possible to maintain the innocence of youth because time eventually, what can I say, de destroys, destroys us over time. And so it, it in a certain way becomes a rather serious and rather dark poem, but it's a, a beautiful thing. And John sets it in the most mature fashion for a young composer of 21 years old, probably he was at the time. Uh, he sets it in the most grown-up fashion. He actually uh, dedicated it to his high school chorus teacher, a woman who really championed his career and was something of a surrogate parent to him, and sent it to her with a dedication. And it was performed by his, um, by his high school chorus at its premiere with piano uh, in, in Brooklyn. And uh, only later did he then set it for orchestra and was it played um, all over the country and the world. The text, I won't read you the whole poem because it's, it's rather extensive, but why don't I read the first stanza or so? 
Now I was young and easy under the apple boughs, about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green. The night above the dingle starry, time let me hail and climb, golden in the heydays of his eyes, and honored him on wagons, I was prince of the apple towns. And once below a time I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was green and carefree, famous among the barns, about the happy yard and singing as the farm was home in the sun that is young once only time let me play and be golden in the mercy of his means and so it goes uh, as he describes this incredible idyllic youth but how time allowed him to enjoy it but then it uh, toward the end it, it becomes much much darker as i said here's the the last stanza i guess roughly Nothing I cared in the lamb-white days that time would take me up to the swallow-thronged loft by the shadow of my hand in the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. And John loves to quote that last couplet, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea, that even as he was young and fresh, time already was beginning to wear on his, his life span. Uh, so it's an incredible, beautiful setting and owes a great deal to John Corleano's antecedents, particularly to Samuel Barber. He was very much influenced by the music of Aaron Copland, being a young American composer in the 50s, uh, and of Samuel Barber as well. You know, Samuel Barber being the great American neo-romantic of his era, and in a certain way, John Corleano taking on that mantle and being the great American romantic of our era. In fact, uh, when Samuel Barber heard this piece uh, a year or so after it was composed, he was so thrilled by and thought it was so beautiful that he sent it to his publisher, G. Shermer. And G. Shermer agreed to publish it. And ever since, G. Shermer has been John Corleano's publisher. What's most striking about it is that John had really never had formal composition lessons. He simply had sort of intuited the art of composition. He had had a class or two at Columbia, but uh, really had never been trained as a composer. So clearly a very fresh, exciting new voice uh, emerging. I believe the piece was completed in 1961. This is John Corleano's setting of Dylan Thomas's poem, Fern Hill. The chorus is Albany Pro Musica, whose conductor is David Griggs Janauer, and the orchestra is the Albany Symphony. They're all conducted by me in this performance, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The sole work on the second half of our program was Johann Sebastian Bach's Magnificat in D major. This is a very important and a very singular work in Bach's oeuvre. It was written in 1723, the year that Bach took on his new and very important, I think his final job, uh, as the Thomas Kirsche Cantor in Leipzig. Now, uh, the Cantor in, in, in Lutheran tradition is, is really the music director of the entire town. This was a very significant job that, that Bach took 
took over. It had originally been offered to Georg Philipp Telemann, who was at that time a much more famous composer than Bach. He turned it down. Then it was offered to another gentleman, Mr. Graupner, I believe. And then finally it was offered to Bach, who leapt at the chance of having such an important post. Uh, the post involved not only providing the music for the two main Lutheran churches in Leipzig, but also uh, teaching at the school, training the choir, preparing the orchestra, and of course, writing voluminous amounts, unbelievable amounts of music. Bach vowed to write a different cantata for every uh, weekend of the year, for every different part of the text of the of the Bible that was being uh, studied or, or featured on that weekend. And as you know, uh, wrote an unbelievable group of cantatas over his years there. Uh, but in addition, when Bach first arrived, he wanted very much to have sort of a calling card. And so for that first Christmas after his arrival in 1723, he took this very celebrated liturgical poem, the Magnificat, which is uh, a poem that's attributed to the Virgin Mary when she first discovers that she's pregnant with the, the child Jesus. Uh, she sort of speaks this hymn of praise to God's greatness. And it's a very brief and very concise poem. And what Bach did, as many other composers had done before and would do again, but no one perhaps ever as effectively as Bach, is each movement of the piece. And there are 12 movements or 12 arias and choruses in the piece each movement simply has one line of text from the poem. So actually, unlike the cantatas, where there's a huge amount of text and a lot of what we call restatives, sort of spoken, some sung uh, places between the arias, between the songs, uh, in this case, there are there is no restative because there isn't that much text, but each aria or each chorus essentially is one very pithy and important line of text from this poem proclaiming God's glory. So as I mentioned, there are 12 movements. The work features for Bach a, a very wonderful and beautiful orchestra. Uh, it's an orchestra that consists of strings, of course, with both um, organ and harpsichord. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear our continuo player, Greg Hayes, going back and forth between organ and uh, harpsichord, depending on what he feels uh, the, the particular aria or chorus calls for. In addition, there are two oboes, which also play a very unusual instrument today, the oboe d'amore, uh, but it also features uh, three trumpets, very brilliant Baroque trumpets, and timpani, which gives it this incredible sort of brilliance uh, that you'll hear from the very opening of the piece. It's crisp and, and incredible. In, in addition, there are two flutes featured in the piece. In the original version, the 1723 version, flutes weren't actually uh, included. It was really two recorders, you know, much softer instruments and sort of an earlier instrument. But for the later version, the version that we'll be playing and the, the version that's usually played, the 1730 version, Bach renovated the piece dramatically. It had originally been in the key of E flat, and he decided that the trumpet sounded better in D, so he changed the key to the key of D in 1730. He uh, changed the recorders to flutes and featured them very, very prominently. And he also introduced the oboe d'amore, which hadn't been in the first version. So he did some rather significant renovations. But what, what I find so striking about this piece orchestrally is that with these very, you know, by contemporary standards, very minimal forces, just the two flutes, the two oboes, the three trumpets, the drums, uh, a bassoon, and then strings and, and continuo har harpsichord uh, uh, organ, he manages to create such incredibly unique and distinctive color worlds. Just in the two movements that really feature the flutes, it's like it's a whole different world in that wonderful movement that features the oboe d'amore. It's its own unique thing. So he can deploy one instrument and completely change the character and the sound and the, the whole orchestral feeling of a movement. Very magical use of really minimal orchestral forces. Uh, in addition, obviously, there's a big, beautiful chorus, and we're delighted once again, as we often are, to be joined by Albany Pro Music 
Musica. Uh, we've had a great time working with them and their inspired director, David Griggs Janauer. And then also in this piece, interestingly, the chorus is divided not into the usual four parts. You know, the choruses are usually soprano, alto, tenor, bass. In this case, Bach wanted to do something a little different. He has first soprano, second soprano, alto, tenor, bass. So five different vocal parts, giving him more possibility for lots more counterpoint, lots more running lines going against each other. And to sort of complement that, he calls also for five soloists, a high soprano, a a pretty darn high soprano, an alto, a tenor, and a bass, or bass baritone. And the five soloists each get their own, basically their own one single fabulous aria. And then in addition, there are just a couple of other uh, pieces for, there's one duet, there's a trio, and there's even an ensemble piece where just the five soloists sing. So it's a, an incredible achievement in terms of both reducing all the things that Bach would do later in his long productive life, uh, musically and uh, dramatically in his in his cantatas as well as in his his larger pieces, the Mass in B minor, the, the Saint Matthew Passion, the various Passions, etc. Um, it's a sort of distillation of all the things he could do because, in essence, he was writing this piece as a calling card in 1723 to show just how much he could manage in about a half hour. So it's probably his most concise choral vocal work, but it's also one of his most joyful works, and it really is uh, an amazing achievement that he's been able to distill all of the baroque practices of the time into this amazing 26 or 27 minutes of music. So here it is, Bach's Magnificat in D major. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony. The chorus is Albany Pro Musica. We're joined by five brilliant soloists, vocal soloist, Yulia Van Doren, soprano, Susan Consoli, soprano, Catherine Groudon, mezzo-soprano, Ethan Bremer, tenor, and Douglas Williams, bass baritone. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.